From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, French unicorn Quanto partners with Crowdcube to open up ownership. Fast shuts down doors after a slow growth period. And One Direction member Liam Payne, didn't know who that was, we'll come back to that later on, launches a Revolut card. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 618 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Brewer and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry who is the Strategy Director of Business Design and Growth here at 11FS. Great to have you on the show, Nicole. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, David. Very well indeed. Uh, yeah, lovely to be here. Um, and for a bit of context, uh, as David said, I'm a Strategy Director at 11FS and I help clients think about strategies to leverage new digital business models and revenue streams and to help them think about all of the components they should have in the business uh, in order to do so. So great to be here. Thank you. No worries. But I mean, and you're actually here as well. I am. Like the thing I'm really excited about, like for all of the listeners here, there are two other people in the room with me. Like I'm really excited. Like Dan sat on his, uh, sat on his own Todd in, uh, in his house, but like everybody else is here. Like, and I'm deeply excited about that, which means we're all in for trouble, I'm afraid. But uh, <laughs> just, just on that, Nicole, I mean, business models is something people love to keep on to for as long as they can do. Like, like you've got to have a pretty big crowbar to get some new one of those in there, right? Well, in terms of uh, bringing new ones into the business. Yeah, people don't like to let go of how they no, make money. No, no, right? no, no, no. But I think, yeah, if people are waking up to the fact that the revenue streams that they held on to and that banks held on to for such a long time are actually now diminishing and they're not just the talk of the threat of them diminishing. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 a desperation as much as it is a curiosity, I think. <laughs> well, if you can't get them with the carrot, get them with the stick, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> as always, we are joined by some super degree awesome guests. Firstly, making a Fintech Insider debut today, we have Dan Hardy, VP of Sales over at Crowdcube. Welcome to the show, Dan. How are you doing? Yeah, very good. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Sorry I couldn't make it to the studio, but great to be here. Next time. Next time, definitely. Um, tell us, uh, for anybody who's been living under a rock for the last couple of years, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you guys do at Crowdcube. Yeah, sure. So Crowdcube is Europe's leading equity crowdfunding platform, allowing retail investors to invest in early and late stage startups that they love. Uh, we were founded back in 2010 and uh, to date we've raised about £1.5 billion through the platform for about 1,300 startups across uh, UK and Europe. Dang, that's a lot of money. Uh, do you know, I've, uh, well, we'll come to this as we get into the, because you guys have, have clearly made the, the news in this sense, but I've often thought about doing like a crowdfunding thing for, for Fintech Insider or 11FS. Like, I think it would be quite an entertaining thing to do, but I'm, re- I'm really scared to do those types of things. If I'm honest <laughs> with you, like uh, I'm the guy who didn't want to have a birthday party with it at, at, when I was like young because I was scared nobody would turn up. Like, has anybody done a crowdfunding thing and nobody's done it? Like there must be, there must be ones, right? Back in the day, back in 2014, 2013, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it definitely happened. But nowadays, it's a lot more, it's a lot bigger. So um, yeah, you'll be fine. We'll, wow. we'll talk about it. It's my paranoia of just nobody cares. Like, that's the <laughs> thing. So, uh, but thankfully, there are listeners and listeners there there are, which is good. Uh, and joining me in the studio today, we have a Fintech Insider debut for Peter Renton, who is the co-founder and chairman over at Lendit Fintech. Welcome to the show, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, great to join you in person here. We're back to in person these days. Ain't it great? Like, yes. let's just pretend COVID never happened. Eh? <laughs> uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Lend It Fintech, tell us a little bit more. Sure. So we are a digital media and events company focused on the fintech space. We operate in um, 
the US. We're actually a US company, even though I don't sound American. We are a US company. We also operate here in London, and we cover the Latin American market as well. We have a we have an event in in Miami that covers that market. Very nice. Events in Miami, you can't go wrong with those, can you? Like uh, in the winter too. If we ha- we have them in in December and February. Wow. I mean, <laughs> and it's like a you don't get that in like a, a wet weekend in uh, in sort of Stratford. Do you know what I mean? So it's like uh, I mean the the events are getting bigger and bigger and bigger as well, aren't they? Yes, they are. And we're, we're like obviously very excited to be back to in person. Um, we've been doing virtual events for the last uh, two years, and we are back. We're in New York. We're, we've already broken records for our New York, New York event, which will be uh, in uh, at the end of May, May. 25th and 26th. Very cool. Super exciting. All right. We better get on. Like, I could chat about my sadness about people not turning up to my birthday parties for another hour, <laughs> but we, there's a lot of stuff that happened this week. We probably should start talking about it, I guess. Uh, and the first story that we had was uh, covered in a bunch of places, but the one that we picked up was tech.eu. Was Unicorn Quanto partners with Crowdcube to open up ownership. Quanto, the French all-in-one finance solution for SMEs and freelancers, has partnered with Crowdcube to launch a community equity raise. Having closed a mammoth 486 million euros Series D funding earlier on this year, Quanto is now primarily targeting clients uh, in France, Italy, Spain, and Germany. Quanto will invite customers over the age of 18 to pre-register with Crowdcube before the 19th of April. And after this date, the campaign will officially launch, giving pre-registrants first dibs at snapping up their own stake within the company. Quanto CEO Alexandra Pott said, we are taking a step forward and empowering our clients to take part in the journey as shareholders now within the company. Uh, I mean, Dan, let's go to you on this one first, Kiss. Like, this is your thing, which is which is awesome. Um, how much of a of a market down really is this for for Crowdcube and I guess crowdfunding much more general in terms of like like you say earlier on in this trend, it was the the sort of alternative route to you know going big in VC, but getting your your customers to be really a big part of your story, your growth story, is is really important. Yeah, it's huge. And I think it's a huge moment for France and, and Europe, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we've been blessed in the UK because of regulation from the FCA and a long list of fintechs that have kind of paved the way for other other European fintechs, you know, the likes of Monzo, Revolut, Chip, Free Trade, those sort of companies. But yeah, now because of regulation change in Europe, people can raise up to 13 million euros in one outing. So I think it's um, a huge moment that Conto have gone out and said it. And, and I think it will be the, the starting of, of lots of other announcements coming and lots of other big players in Europe starting to see the value of it, definitely. Yeah. And like you say, I mean, it does seem, it seems like seconds ago, doesn't it? I mean, the, what was it? The uh, 96 seconds 96 Monzo seconds, rate. Memory, yeah. yeah. That like, that was crazy, wasn't it? You know, and yeah. that, what was that? 2017, 2016? No, 20, 2015, 2015, 2016. Yeah. Man, um, I feel like there's a lot of things happening in the last couple of weeks that made me feel super old. Like, yeah, that seems like ancient history now, but, but the market's come a really long way in that, in that time. And as you say, the different brands that are really doing this now are, are getting, uh, more and more significant raises, aren't they? But break down a little bit for us what a, what a community equity raise sort of really means in that sense. 
Yeah, so a community raise is just allowing your customers, users, fans of the business to invest alongside VCs or angel investors in, in the round. Um, and it's it's all about community. It's about turning your customers into shareholders and allowing them to share in your success going forward. So in Conto's case, uh, they wanted to strengthen the relationship between the customers and build really a European entrepreneur community that they can that are committed to building the mission. So any fintech in the UK, community is at their core of, of that. And I think that's what people are starting to realise at the later stage in the UK and now in Europe. Um, an interesting anecdote, Carl uh, Pei, a Swedish entrepreneur who founded Nothing, the um, hardware startup, um, they just raised £7 million in the platform this week. And they, he, he sums it up perfectly. He said that the line between community and company is disappearing. And that's kind of, I think, a lot of people are starting to get onto that. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, it, it is fascinating to see how that changes. And obviously, uh, I mean, many of the companies that are, are doing this, you know, Monzo, you know, the fintech community more broadly, you know, these are pre-IPO organizations. But actually, you know, there's a whole group of people who, as you say, are part of that community, but don't have the opportunity yet to to buy stock in those companies in the way in which you could do a, you know, an Amazon or a Twitter or a Tesla or whatever, you know. So it, it, it sort of allows people to literally put their money where their mouth is to a certain degree in terms of, uh, you know, supporting that thing that's supporting them in a different way, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's that's the benefit. It's, it's building um, a, a massive... Uh, army of advocates for your business whether you're uh, early stage or, or going through scaling up um, so for a business it's really about supercharging your growth trying to bring your customers as close as you can to the business they turn into referral engines they'll defend you on social media they'll shout about you spend more churn less um, and yeah just be those those true advocates for the business um, and, and for investors yeah they can hopefully share in the success of the business as well very cool. So I think all in all, what you're telling me is that I should have had that birthday party, aren't you? Absolutely. What do you think on this? <laughs> well, there's still time. There's still time. There's still you know, time. It's going to it's going to be a lot bigger number than it was. There's going to be a lot more sort of uh, candles on that cake this time. But uh, uh, Nicole, what do you think on this? Is this a is this a real alternative now? Do you think to uh, the way in which you know traditional sort of VC route would have been would have been taken? Because we're seeing more and more organisations sort of go this route. Really, I think it's. An interesting, it depends on the sum in which you're trying to raise, I think. So if we're talking up to £13 million, pounds, it definitely feels like the way to go. And it, it comes, I think, with less pressure than raising money from the VC community does because you're you're working with people that want to see you succeed and the pressure that you know from the VC community isn't necessarily there. It's more like the you you are it's as an, an excitement piece rather than a funding to put pressure on you to grow to make profit. And of course, all of those liabilities as such are still there, but your engagement with the community is so different. And when you were talking about the benefits. Dan of raising in this way I, you know, I was putting my hands up I'm a CrowdCube customer and I you know the, the, it's the, some of the fintechs that I've invested I'm consistently telling my friends how amazing they are and anytime they're looking for financial needs I'm always recommending the ones that I've you know in, invested in, in in small amounts uh, and it's just great to see it grow and you see that there's a real investment not only just to get people to invest but then to engage and get feedback with them so some of the ones that I'm sort of involved with you know they have Facebook groups and they ask for polls on should we launch this feature before that feature or what's your thoughts on us changing the interest rate of the savings products and you really feel like you have a say um 
And then I just think for for people, it really democratizes the opportunity to invest. For some reason, it, it, it as much as it's the same concept as investing in a stocks and shares, ISA, it it brings it much more closer to home, and you feel like you are closer to that company and can make an informed opinion in what you're investing in, and you kind of almost trust and believe in that rather than a fund of necessarily mixed investments that you're not close to. They're massive companies and you would never have an influence on. Do, do you sort of find a, do you have a, a different sense of mentality in that? With the, so do you feel more committed to the companies that you've bought into to not move your money to like the next? Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. So, I mean, in that sense then, Dan, I mean, it's a great it, and yeah. actually, in this in this instance, in terms of what these this organisation has done, I mean, they clearly sort of don't need the money given this, the magnitude of raises that they've done. This is a way of you know, to your yeah. point, uh, really being in a situation where they're creating a that army of people mm-hmm. to to work with them to you know kind of keep them humble and keep them working to to make their product that the customers actually care about. So, uh, I mean, it's essentially a retention tool in some ways as yeah. well, right? Sounds good. What do you think? Well, I, I was going to say that um, I'm jealous, actually, because in the US, while we do have some crowdfunding platforms, it's just it's not nearly as much of the, um, the, the you know the scale, and certainly in the fintech space, virtually no one's using it. And so, what you're describing, like all of my favorite fintech companies in America, I, I mean, I, I actually own some shares on the public markets, but all the private ones, you can't. You can't really own them, and I think it's, I think what what Crowdcube has done has been you know really I think just been fantastic for the UK and Europe. I wish we'd had a bit more uptake on the you know the crowd the crowdfunding um, you know the whole concept just never re- hasn't really made it uh, into the mainstream in America. Yeah, I guess the VC market in the US is probably a little bit more developed necessarily in in terms of actually how that works. But there does seem to be sort of route one, doesn't there? Yeah. Uh, and actually, it would be nice to have options in there because competition is always good for you know as, essentially the the entrepreneur or the end consumer, isn't it? In that sense. Yeah, and it seems to me like when I look at a lot of these campaigns, like this one from Conto, I mean, it seems like I'd love to get Dan's perspective on this. I mean, how many companies are actually raising that need the money versus just really want to create an army of believers? Yeah, I think it's, it's evolving every year as, as, as the industry evolves. I mean, um, we, every year, our average deal size is going up and up. Last year, our average deal size on the platform was about a million pounds. So we're, we're seeing most of the growth actually in the Series A plus companies where it's not right. about the money actually it's more about mm-hmm. them understanding the the halo benefits of crowdfunding um you know the advocacy the loyalty the engagement but also the pr the press and just making a big splash about your company so yeah, it really does vary however we've started at seed we, we raise anywhere from one hundred and fifty thousand pounds and i don't think we'll ever move away from that because of our brand you know we are kind of built by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs so we'll always um you know always hold a candle to the, the seed founders really very cool. What what's in the the sort of next chapter then for for Crowdcube? Because obviously you know there's a lot in that. I mean, I'm sure pre IPO, uh, Nicole's going to be wanting to like try and uh, you know cash in on some of these increasing valuations of these companies. I mean, how do you guys sort of see the the future of the industry shaping out? Yeah, good question. I mean, Europe's the biggest thing for us at the moment. We've just launched in Paris and Stockholm, Barcelona, and shortly in, in other countries as well because of legislation. So I think Europe will be the big focus for us. Um, but there's there's lots of innovation. Um, we we launched we launched secondary product, and we're doing more and more secondary offerings. So we did uh, a, a secondary for free trade alongside their 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 Series C, um, which was awesome and giving retail um, 
investors who have backed them from day one. They did their first SEIS round with us. Um, so now they're at you know, 600 million valuation. Being able to unlock that liquidity is awesome, um, as well as uh, pre-IPO product and, and an IPO product as well. So going down the, uh, up the food chain and uh, later stage companies as well. So, yeah. Very cool. Well, again, it's, uh, as you say, every great fintech has a community around them, doesn't it? And uh, if that community can be a big part of that story for for the success of those organizations, then that's always going to be a great thing. Uh, I mean, the French fintech scene is doing super duper interesting things as well. So if you're looking for more on why the French fintech ecosystem is currently magnifique and show notes people like i'm never going to be able to get that uh, french pronunciation going there uh go check out episode 567 of fintech insider insights where we deep dived into the subject with guest experts from TrueLayer, sgv and spendest all right we better move on to the next story so this is a bit of a doozy on this one if i'm honest yeah so it's covered in a I mean, everywhere and every social media platform is a flurry of people discussing this one. Uh, but we picked it up over on TechCrunch first, which was Fast shuts down doors after slow growth. Uh, Fast, a startup that provided online checkout products, has announced it is shutting down. The company's future has been in doubt for days now after reports indicated uh, its 2021 revenue growth was modest, its cash burn high, and its fundraising options limited. I think the word modest in that yeah. is... is Somewhat um, doing a heavy lift, that <laughs> exactly stretching, isn't it? Uh, in a statement, the company said that in the wake of making great strides on our mission and making uh, buying and selling frictionless for everybody, we have made the difficult decision to close our doors. The company, founded by Dom Holland and Alison Barr Allen, went on to describe itself as trailblazers, saying that it is not all such parties make it to the top of the mountain, claiming that while it failed, the startup managed to forever change the world of online commerce. So I sort of put out my thoughts on this one on LinkedIn, and I got a lot of people quite angry with me in DMs on LinkedIn about this one. But man, like 124.5 million they raised since 2019. They had a burn of 10 million a month uh, and managed to run out of cash. What the fuck went wrong here? Like, you know, there's just like red flags all over this one in terms of corporate responsibility or their board or their management team or... Mate, who wants to start on this one? <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll give it a crack. When I've, I've been following um, Dom Holland's story a little bit. He's an Aussie entrepreneur in, in America, and uh, so I was, uh, you know, thought I was rooting for him actually. But and he's a very charismatic person. I've never met him, but uh, you know, certainly heard a lot about him. And it just, it's just staggering to me when you read some of the stories. That I mean, the information did a really deep dive into into it, which was just a fascinating read of the excesses that went on. And I mean, I think, in the fairness, in twenty twenty one, there was money sloshing around the fintech space like never before. So I think they probably thought there was a bottomless pit of available capital. So it didn't really matter what their burn was. But the, but still, to me, that's the, the astounding figure is they never made a million dollars in revenue. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I thought they they might be at like twenty million dollars in revenue or something like that, something like that, and that would have been modest. But what was it? Six hundred and six hundred and something yeah. thousand, which is, I mean, to, to put all that money out. So clearly, they just didn't have product market fit at all. Yeah, but but kept spending as if they did. Yes. Yeah, and uh, the interesting thing in, uh, on this is like the the investors are, are good investors. I mean, Stripe Index, uh, Global Founders Capital. I mean, these are not. These are not crazy people. Like these are smart people. So, how, how somebody 
somebody saw these numbers and was like, it'll all come good. Like, So my, my thoughts on this one when I, when I was following this story was that fast was the fintech Tinder swindler. <laughs> you know this Netflix show? Yeah. 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 I haven't watched the Netflix show, so, so like for anybody who hasn't seen it, what give give some context. I I actually kind of turned it off after fifteen minutes. That to is be honest, but I got the gist of the story in fifteen minutes. Basically, a man who who winks all of these women into giving him money hmm. by living this flashy lifestyle. So hopefully, you're starting to see the thread of comparison yeah, here. Yeah. But yeah, it was just a, you know charisma was mentioned there, mm-hmm. marketing campaigns you know, amazing ambitions and growth and, you know, all of this stuff. But substance, not there. Mm-hmm. Product market fit, not there. Execution, just apparently entirely absent. But I think that we're in this place in the market at the moment where, you know, ambition kind of uh, overrules all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that's been led by some of the the biggest growing fintechs and, and technology companies that we have. Uh, but not everyone can be that, right? And not everyone can sail on that ship for so long of we don't make any profit, but we're still, you know. The thing about, um, you know, organizations that aren't making profit, at least they still have customer numbers, whereas fast, their actual product strategy and customer strategy was so limited and had such a cap. Small merchants is required at such volume. And it just, you know, nothing was even, the jigsaw pieces were not fitting together whatsoever. And that was polished by a lovely uh, jigsaw box, shall we say. So that, yeah. that's my 10 cents on the fintech Tinder swindler. I mean, it's interesting, though, <laughs> the reaction to it has been like, there's lots, you can see different people in different camps in this one to a certain degree. Some some people on DM and, and uh, have been like, my big bank X, who will remain nameless, has been like, Hundred million dollars, like what's the big deal? Like we've we've wasted way more than that building whatever. So like in, in a corporate sense, it's like hundred million dollars is not a lot of money, right? But but I, I just think, I mean, the flip side of this is like a lot of people have just been made redundant. Like if there are anybody who's you know listening to this who uh, uh, you know part of this organization, part of Fast, and you're now you know out of a job, like th- that can't feel good that there was such sort of flagrant, you know. They weren't starting a business, you know. It wasn't a business. It was a it was a cash pile on fire. You know, it's kind of crazy. And they hired good people. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. They had good people, and I know a firm is picking up a bunch of them. Mm. But to me, the most staggering thing about this whole story is they went from fundraising. Uh, and they were gonna they, they were gonna go for a unicorn status just like a couple of months ago. Then they said, okay, they'll take a lower valuation. To oh, we'll try and sell our business to failing. That all happened in a month. It's just crazy. It, it really is amazing. So what was that, uh, man? I mean, I, we need to almost pause the podcast and go and figure out what that multiple was. But <laughs> but from 640 to, uh, oh, Jesus, that, it just blows my mind. But again, though, Stripe, you know, Stripe are one of these investors. Like somebody looked at this pitch pack and went, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like that's crazy, isn't it? So I could, like, Nicole, can you imagine like me going to, to Joe, our CFO here at 11FS, and be like, mm-hmm. I'm going to spend $10 million a month and we're not going to have any revenue for it. Be like, she'd literally like lock me up, wouldn't mm. she? I can I can kind of see the logic of like the business case as such is that, yeah, one, one click checkout is huge. And yes, there's really established competitors and whatnot. But for small merchants, does does the pricing structure and, you know, working with one the major one click checkout providers does that work for them do they do they have ways of working that appeal to small merchants and sales and servicing model that appeals maybe not so i could maybe see why there could be a new 
a new entrant that might have appealed. And yes, there are a ton of small merchants around the world, but how that's that's that execution bit is that there is opportunity mm. and there is ambition, but what's gone wrong in the in the execution? I could see why it could be plausible for you to have thought that it was a good idea. Yeah, uh, to your point, it's got to be about ideas are easy. It's all about execution. But Dan, is this a is this a story of uh, you know? Stick or twist gone wrong, or is it uh, you know go big or bo- go bust and they went bust? Yeah, I think I think the second. I think that it's, it's a sign of how much money was sloshing around in 2021. Uh, like the point was made earlier, and um, and also the competition to deploy that capital. I think that's often what we're hearing is actually people are, are dying to get into certain deals, and they want more and more ambitious numbers, and they want more and more ambitious um, strategies. And and I think there was such a uh, such a lot of money going around that there were examples like this really. Yeah. Do, I mean, for everybody in this, do, do you think this will lead to sort of more of a, a a correction from a market perspective? Because I mean, if I'm if I'm a VC right now, like I'd be I'd be really sort of like triple checking those numbers and on anything that's coming across my my desk for a couple of months, just to just because you don't want to be attached to this next one of these, do you? Well, I think I think the correction's already happening in the US. I mean, it's it started slowing down at the start of the year, or even actually in December, I started hearing sort of some more demands from VCs than was happening uh, earlier in 2021. And now, I mean, this is really, I think if he was raising money in August or September of 2021, he would have closed a deal probably. But the fact is now it's it has changed fairly significantly. And you if you, you don't have to have profits, but you've got to have a pretty good pathway to profitability these days to get a, particularly to get an up round. And um, very different, I think, from today than what it was six months ago. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, that uh, it's like you have to have a good business plan now to get money. Shouldn't be a surprise <laughs> to anybody, guys. Like, you should have a good business model. Like, yes. being a bit – and I've seen a lot of people on Twitter say this. It's like they were a startup, they weren't a business. And that was really what the problem was, which was, uh, you know, sometimes if you, uh, if you do go big or go bust, you go bust. So uh, uh, on that note, though, we better pause for a little bit of a break and hear from our sponsors. Back with you shortly. Did you know that the majority of people are investing in cryptocurrency through a taxable account when they could be using an IRA, that's an individual retirement account, and avoiding or deferring those taxes? With Alto Crypto IRA, you can invest in crypto without tax headaches, creating a free account in only minutes. Choose from over 150 coins and invest with as little as $10. That's right, only 10 bucks. No setup charges and no account fees. To open an Alto Crypto IRA with as little as $10, just go to altoira.com forward slash insider. That's A-L-T-O-I-R-A.com forward slash insider. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series, and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back, everybody. Let's get on with the next half of the show. Uh, First up in the second half, we had a story that was over on Verdict, which is the competition will pay for this later. Sounds rather threatening, doesn't it? Klarna completes Price Runner deal. So Klarna has completed its acquisition of shopping comparison platform Price Runner for a reported fee of $1 billion. Klarna announced the Price Runner deal in November last year, but the acquisition has been pending regulatory approval. 
It is the latest in a long string of acquisitions that have established the Swedish player as a 45.6 billion company, as an international retail bank, as well as payments and online shopping powerhouse. Klarna is aggressively expanding, definitely much better word of use there uh, in terms of what Klarna is doing than the one earlier on, uh, expanding its services across Europe and the UK. Uh, with the US well and truly in its sites as well. With businesses in Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and the United Kingdom, Price Runner compares 3.4 million products from 22,500 retailers in 25 different countries. This is super duper interesting, isn't it? Actually, we're seeing financial services players kind of start to acquire things in a sort of a tangential space in terms of what that could do. It's, uh, I mean, for years we saw big banks do M&As for, you know, scaling their businesses into sort of lateral interesting areas. But Dan, what do you think on this one? Is this a, a sign of things to come in terms of with all of this money and all of this success, then, you know, people are going to just start hooving up other companies that really sort of magnify what they're doing? Yeah, I think so. I think there'll be more acquisitions and more consolidation for these big players. Um, and I think it's a really positive thing, Klarna offering sort of uh, diversifying their product range as well. I know there was a lot of pressure on buy now and pay later, and and they had a lot of a lot of pressure from from the regulatory you know um, people as well. So yeah, I think it's a really positive thing. I think there'll be more of it. Yeah, I guess um, it's interesting with the. I don't want to say the uh, the fun being over when it comes to buy now, pay later, but a lot of organizations are sort of getting into it and the regulators looking at it closer and closer and closer, aren't they? So is it almost as sort of seeing, it won't just be Klarna, but we'll see a lot of other players who have really sort of cut their teeth in that space, you know, diversifying into other areas, isn't it? I mean, we've seen this in every other fintech play, right? The beachhead is significant and therefore it breeds you the opportunity to to do something else more significant. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's done in the US, right, the pressure. And then I think Klarna are now reacting to that as well. So um, I think they'll all have to have to follow on. There you go. Deep pockets and consolidation. What, what do you, How do you see this one playing out? Are, are you a, a price runner fan? Um, I can't say I've ever visited it. Um, but I, I love talking about Klarna. All right. <laughs> and their strategy, right? I love. I think when you open the hood on them, they're super interesting, because what I actually think that I, people get obsessed with Klarna about buy now pay later, but I think what they're actually now doing is moving to the you know this closed ecosystem that's anchored in discovery. So it actually becomes about finding the product, and then it's sort of blinking you'll miss it banking, and that's the magic of Klarna. It's not that you enter with the buy now pay later bit, even though that's what they're famous for. What they're now building is this amazing platform that's finding what you love, but it's curated. And there's this argument of, well, if they're trying to do that, could they take on Amazon shopping or Google? And I know when I've searched for something on Amazon or Google, it's you just get everything under the sun. Whereas I'm actually not a Klarna customer, but I've seen from what they've done with influencers and kind of like tracking your data and giving you the right products. I know Amazon obviously does that as well, but it just feels like it's more like you're actually going shopping rather than looking for random things on the internet. And that's where I think everything that they're doing is super interesting. And then they really are, it's embedded finance at its best, right? Mm. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if they could really... uh I mean, I'm such a Amazon fanboy from a like a like buying stuff, and like and and they've got so developed now in their ecosystem across the whole piece. It's like it's not just the online experience; it's like logistically. Do you know what I mean? Like Steve, who turns up with my boxes every week. You know, what I mean, like I look forward to that moment. You know, so it, it's interesting to see what they can do in that space. But it, it's like you say, if they're 
they're doing more of a hybrid. It feels a bit more physical, as in it feels much more like a shopping experience. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's more. It's more of a psychological hit. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm just like I just want some more diesel jeans. Like yeah. Amazon send me them. But yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. No, yeah, psychologically, yeah. that experience. Like, yeah, I mean, the, I don't get that many endorphins from Amazon, right? Normally, because I'm buying like sellotape or something, but. If you go shopping, it's like, wow, like, oh my gosh, like, I can put this outfit together, or I can find this thing, or I can maybe try it, I can see what other people are doing. And the whole thing about Klarna that they focused on is the the psychology of how that makes you feel, how having choice at checkout makes you feel, how having frictionless payment makes you feel, uh, you know, the pink and the Snoop Dogg, like, it's all supposed to be feel-good stuff. Whereas I feel like Amazon, Google, it's pretty functional. But it's great functional. But sometimes if you're looking for something that makes you feel good and makes you feel, especially for the target market that they operate in, that's super important. So I think, yeah, I think that's where they double down on against Google and Amazon. Nice. Yeah. Actually, I forgot about the Snoop Dogg thing, actually. Yeah. They were, the, they were first, weren't they? And yes. then Just Eat got in there as well, didn't they? <laughs> so incidentally, when I when I played my kids the Super Bowl halftime show with Snoop Dogg in it, <laughs> they were like, that's the guy from the Just Eat commercial. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, yeah. He just... you know, I have to say, I've got a very strange crush on Snoop Dogg. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. I think it's the pigtails that do it for me, to be okay. honest. I'm not sure he'd call them pigtails, but, you know. I'm sure. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, he... Oh, God, of course. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Snoop Dogg is everywhere. In, in the US these days, he does beer. He does, you know, Klarna. He's yeah. he's, he's ubiquitous, people love him. and people yeah, people love him. He's sort of having this resurgence in uh, in his career. But anyway, Klarna, I think, is so fascinating. I'm, I'm with you, Nicole. I think I just think they're one of the most interesting fintech companies out there, and, and they they actually don't, I think, get enough kudos. I don't think in the US. Because, I mean, they do. They had a Super Bowl ad, and they 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 sort of get um, you know, they're pretty. They're on they're on TV a lot as far as their advertising goes, but you know they got like I've read they have twenty five million customers now in the US. That's more than a firm and afterpay combined. Wow! And you know they've done this, uh, you know, in a pretty short short amount of time, and they, they dominate. You see, when you're shopping around US websites, I mean, Klarna, if it's a major brand website, it's Klarna's everywhere, mm. and so I feel like they. They are just, you know, they're, they're stealthily kind of ganging up on Amazon if that's possible. But um, they're really, I think, a huge fintech success story. Now, I don't know about their valuation, but they're, they're executing. They have a few more customers than fast. <laughs> well, and a lot more revenue, I reckon, as well. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting in that sense as well that uh, – you know, the the idea that, and I guess we've, we've sort of seen this in the US with Shopify, particularly the fact that, you know, Klarna are sort of embedding financial services as the the last mile. Like, it's not really about financial services, as you were saying. It's it's about the, the end-to-end experience that they're enabling. So I think we'll see more and more and more of that as we as we go, really. But, and then it's, it's brands that you really, you sort of, you trust. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, if they start making recommendations for, you know, me looking great in that outfit or whatever, and I trust their recommendation, then then actually the financial services bit becomes sort of irrelevant, albeit yeah. very, very profitable. I think as well, they, they seem to have gotten away with the kind of the trust data issue that people have with Amazon and Google. Um, I mean, I'm not entirely sure about their data monetization strategy at Klarna, but it feels like they... I don't know, it just feels more like they do it for your benefit, which is why consumers would want to give over their data, right? Whereas... The Amazon and Google perception is you are the I am the product and they're selling me on. Mm. 
And whereas Klarna just feels a bit warmer in that sense, I think. Yeah. And I think they've really sort of earned themselves quite a lot of um, good rep in the UK as well by really sort of proactively going after working with the regulators to on mm-hmm. buy now, pay later and everything that's going there. So, uh, look, this is definitely not going to be the last time we're going to be talking about these guys on this on the podcast. <laughs> that I think if anything, like I say, as, we, as we've seen, uh, doing really well and in one vertical allows you the opportunities to do really well in other ones. It's the story that I'd say like 300 years ago, all of the big banks started with. Uh, It's just maybe they got a bit carried away somewhere along the lines. All right, uh, we're going to move on. This time, the story we picked up was covered in a bunch of different places, but the Times is where we got it. Rishi Sunak asks the Royal Mint to launch a non-fungible token. Rishi Sunak has asked the British Royal Mint to launch a non-fungible token, NFT, as part of plans to turn Britain into a global crypto asset hub. Uh, I think we're going to have to change our, our, our tax structuring slightly to, to really sort of get that one there, uh, Rishi. Uh, the Royal Mint the coin maker, which is ultimately owned by the government, said it, its first NFT range would be available from this summer. The Chancellor of the Exchequer said that it would be making more details available very soon about this project. Alongside this, the Treasury said that they intend to adjust the UK's legislation to bring stablecoins within the payments and regulatory perimeter. Uh, does that mean taxable? Uh, which means that they will be regulated like normal money when used for payments. This will allow firms issuing stable coins to operate and invest in the UK and consumers to use them with confidence in uh, speech marks, which is never great on a podcast, but you know I'm doing the science right. Um, so for any of you who may be asking what the hell is a stable coin, well, we have a handy explainer by Kai Sheffield, who is head of crypto over at Visa from our Blockchain Insider Sister podcast. Let's hear from him now. Stable coins make public blockchains useful as payment rails because now you can represent and transfer fiat you know, over them. You know, before stable coins... You, know, you could use a public blockchain as a payment rail, but that meant you had to use a cryptocurrency. Now, when you can take a, a traditional dollar, you can convert it into a digital or crypto dollar, and whoever receives it doesn't immediately have to go and convert that back into another currency. They can hold it knowing that you know that token they have is backed one-to-one by fiat. You know, Public blockchains have the potential to be like a global RTP network. And we think that that's a really important primitive that you can build a lot of different new payment flows and products and services you know, on top of. Uh, so we're really excited to see where it goes while recognizing it's still really early for what does it mean to be able to use fiat on a blockchain and store it in a crypto wallet. It's super interesting, isn't it? I mean, obviously, this has been something that's sort of been brewing in many geos for a long period of time. And, you know, obviously, with all of the different things that we're seeing globally happening, the cryptocurrency scene is is taking off in a, a major way. And like, I can ju- discuss the legitimacies of NFTs and uh, whether I think they're crazy or not. But, you know, one thing's for certain is um, this stuff is not going away, right? So I guess there's two stories here is like, is this a little bit like the dad dancing at the disco? You know, we've got the 
the Royal Mint and, you know, the the UK government trying to kind of get in the, in this sort of crazy crypto stuff. And and does this make sense? And then the slide of that, I guess uh, the other side of that really is, you know, are stable coins and cryptocurrencies really going to ever, uh, you know, be stable enough for people to kind of operate in this uh, in this sense? So uh, maybe maybe let's start with the, the dad at the disco analogy. What, what, do, what do you think? Is this a, is this a real thing? I, I, I thought, I think we should, before we talk about the dad at the disco, I think there is a bit of that in it, but we should put it in context. This I, I was at Innovate Finance this week where City Minister John Glenn gave a speech which I had very low expectations of. It ended up being, I think, quite a good speech where he talked about... He's a good guy, isn't yeah. he? We've had him on the podcast a couple of times. Where He's a smart he, guy. He talked about really having the UK becoming a, a crypto hub, sort of really basically UK is going all in on crypto. So it was within that context they're talking about this NFT thing. And I, I think they probably realized when they were doing this that they were going to get a lot of blowback on it, which I was watching. Twitter is going nuts about how, what a stupid idea it is. But I think for them, it's just to say, we want to put our flag in the sand and say, we are, we're going all in on crypto. And this is just a symbol uh, of that, of that movement. Yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? You you often wonder. And we had um, producer Laura remember this moment. We we went with, uh, to interview John Glenn, and my view was going to be: you see a lot of MPs who do good talks and read from scripts, and you know, it's like how much of that do you actually understand, sir? But uh, but actually, you know, zero script talked very very confidently, really understand all of these these, these topics, and I, I you know gained a lot of respect for him there. It wasn't a it wasn't a uh, uh, a fueled by somebody telling him what to say thing. It was he genuinely knew about the subject matter. So that's got to be a good thing. But I guess in the UK market, we're in quite an interesting place right now, I guess, from a regulatory perspective, which not only on the, the Royal Mint side of things, but the Bank of England, the FCA, the PRA, uh, everything that's happening with the, the Open Banking Initiative, we're in a bit of a state of flux now with like who's in charge and finding our place a little bit in terms of, you know, really kicking on from everything that's happened here. I agree with you. I think this is a good step that people are taking to kind of put a stake in the ground and and try and lead, you know, in in that sense to uh, from a global perspective and and actually with everything that's happened with, you know, Brexit, which feels like a long time ago now, don't, don't it? We don't talk about Brexit much anymore. Um, but with that and everything that's happened, still make the UK an attractive place to to be, to play, to to build businesses. But uh, um, I mean, like stable coin wise, like like who's holding here? Are you uh, are you guys got assets in this sense, or or NFTs for that matter? Uh, I haven't, um, to be honest with you, but um, I think it's super exciting. I think there's some leading companies in the US that are taking the lead, and I think the UK has got an opportunity to try and position itself there. You know, we at Crowdcube, we took an investment as part of our Series C last year from Circle, who were the founders of USDC. And, you know, what they're trying to do with rebuilding financial systems and structures and really rebuilding the financial world on um, USDC, I think is fascinating. And it has so many implications for emerging markets and other markets. So I, I think it's a really interesting move. I, I can't wait to see how they evolve it and if they evolve and where it goes. But yeah, the fact the UK have come out and said that, I think it's super exciting. Nicole, I mean, a, a big part of this, I'm, I mean, obviously, it's like, as we sort of zoom out from this with the, the whole sort of DeFi space and and almost like the idea of like this sense to be, you know, this decentralized nature with less central governance and less central bodies and being able to pass these things without going through those those necessary rails. Does that then sort of rub a little bit with, well, the establishment and the, it's almost like, uh, it's like your grand doing punk, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's meant to be sort of slightly anti-establishment, therefore, does it make sense that the establishment is getting into it? Or is, there, or is this just the, 
You know, I, I read um, Dave Grohl's biography. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? That was a <laughs> real, real weird tangent. And he said he had this weird, he did a, a really great um, South by Southwest. He did a really great talk about the point where punk and uh, alternative rock went mainstream and the feeling of like, well, actually, like we're this little niche and we like to be this little niche. But now it's like a global phenomenon and everybody was singing along to, you know, Nirvana's greatest hits type thing. Like, is that where the community is going to start feeling a little bit weird about this, which is like, if it all goes mainstream and everything is these things, then where's my little special thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing about how the community feels about it, but then... It's how the mass market feels about it, which is probably where this thing is trying to land, right? Like, that Rishi is not doing this to appeal to Web3 purists who get pissed off at the way of the world as it is today. This is a PR move to say that we believe that this stuff is here, is, you know, is, is here for the main... Um, you know, here for the long term and we believe in it. And I actually think it's an indication to say that we believe that the fiat system and the traditional system can exist in harmony. It's almost a little bit of an olive branch, I think. Uh, so, you know, gaining engagement with people that aren't necessarily educated and just kind of hear NFT floating about and like see it on Twitter to say we're serious about this stuff. But also we fully intend for this to happen alongside what we managed today. How much do you reckon uh, Rishi's like, man, if I could start taxing those NFTs and that cryptocurrency, like, we, we got like a, <laughs> this COVID thing put a big hole in my budget, you know? Like, yeah, I mean, maybe that's There's got to be something right in that there. as well. That's the strategy uh, right there. Uh, we'll, have to, we'll have to tap up Laura to reach out to, to, to Rishi and see if we can get him on the podcast for some comments on this one. But I would be fascinated to see how many NFTs he, he, uh, he mm -hmm. has, but... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but anyway, look, we better be uh, better be wrapping up this one and uh, and moving on. As always, every week there's a bunch of stuff that we just don't get a chance to cover, but we do like to give them a little bit of a shout out. So uh, we're gonna run through a couple of these. I think Nicole, you've got the first one to get us going. Yeah, sure. Uh, so we're going to touch on the Egyptian financial super app Kasna, which has raised $38 million from Kuona Capital and Lendable. And this was picked up in TechCrunch. Um, and in a nutshell, Cairo-based Kasna, which is a self-described financial super app, I think that's quite important, self-described, um, has raised $38 million, uh, Series A in debt and equity. Uh, it was founded in 2019 and provides basic banking and a variety of financial services products focused on middle and lower income earners. The first entry point in itself was an earned wage access product uh, that was launched in 2020, which is dubbed Kasna HR and essentially allows employers to offer cash advances to employees either in part or in full um, or kind of as, as they earn them. So since securing an undisclosed seed round, Kasna has uh, added offerings such as buy now, pay later, bill payments and a prepaid debit card, very much products that um, appeal to that segment. Uh, the round received participation from Include and the VC fund launched by three Egyptian banks and Dubai-based global ventures. Um, so a quick couple of thoughts on that one. So perhaps is one of the sort of buzzwords at the moment and every bank seems to want to be moving towards that. Um, where this actually does have some clout is that super apps typically perform well in markets where there's large populations of the unbanked or markets that are conducive to sort of leapfrogging of uh, technologies or leapfrogging of existing banking products. Um, so I think this has actually got, you know, got some wind. So in addition to having really conducive market conditions, I think that 
something like CASNA really opens the door uh, with engagement for consumers who may be looking to access non-bank services and then they kind of explore banking along the way. And why that works is because they are completely excluded from the financial services offerings and industries in that market at the moment. Um, So actually it's a bit of a discovery process and something that's completely embedded. So yeah, I think it's exciting um, and definitely one to watch. Mm, Super interesting. I mean, I've seen a lot of organisations talking about Egypt as a uh, potentially a really big growth area. So it'll be uh, amazing to see uh, what happens more and more in that space. All right, the next one we had was covered over on Register. IBM offers real-time fraud detection in new Z16 mainframe. IBM has lifted the covers off the Z16, the newest member of its Z-series mainframe family. The mainframe focuses on the financial services industry with a new processor that has built-in AI acceleration for real-time fraud detection. The Z16, generally available from May 31st, is the successor to its Z15 that was launched back in 2019 and adopted by many banks. I don't know a lot about this one, but let's talk to somebody who did. So to give us a little bit more information on what is a quantum safe system and how it will actually impact financial services, uh, we reached out to the Managing Director of Financial Services and Transformation at IBM. Let's have a little listen to what he said. On Tuesday this week, IBM revealed its next generation mainframe, the IBM Z16, which represents the industry's first ever quantum safe system. Today, data on computer systems is protected using encryption algorithms. When we talk about quantum safe, we're talking about algorithms that are resistant to attacks by the computers we use today, as well as the capabilities that quantum computers will have in the near future. The IBM Z16 mainframe uses a kind of security technology called lattice-based cryptography, which will keep information assets secure even after a large-scale quantum computer has been built. The financial services industry loses $32 billion in card fraud every year, as running fraud detection models at scale in real time has not been possible due to latency issues. The IBM Z16 mainframe brings together artificial intelligence with highly secure, high-volume transaction processing, enabling fraud detection in real time and on a massive scale. This is made possible by the Z16 system's IBM Telem chip design, which allows deep learning technology to analyze and process more than 300 billion high-value transactions with just one millisecond of latency. For consumers, this will mean less time to deal with fraudulent activities, and for merchants and card issuers, less scope for revenue loss. This merging of artificial intelligence and processing speed will create opportunities to impact financial processes, such as the speeding up of loan approvals, through to improve risk management for financial transaction clearing and settlement. Super uh, lattice-based AI sounds delicious. Like uh, <laughs> it sounds like some sort of crumbly treats. But uh, uh, do you know, what? I really think this is interesting because I, I think um, mainframe, like I think IBM have a problem with this in the same way as like SAP have a problem with this to a certain degree, which is mainframe has like a brand problem. Um, so many big organizations go, do you know what, we're, we're trying to get away from the mainframe. And what they mean is like some old fucking arsed version of it that causes all of the problems that, they, that they've that they got. But actually the, the new technology that these guys are actually building in these things are actually very, very good. In the same way as like old versions of SAP kind of make me cry, but the new versions are actually pretty sophisticated. So, so I do think this is super interesting, but we'll have to see how different organizations kind of adopt these things. Thanks, David. Uh, So next up, we have that the Bank of Italy has banned N26 from onboarding new customers over anti-money laundering 
feelings. So Italy's central bank has uh, banned N26 after checks last year flagged the risk around DML. Um, it's also banning the bank from offering new products and services such as crypto assets uh, to existing customers. So this is not the first time that N26 has come under fire for its lax anti-money laundering procedures and it has been facing heightened security from the German regulator over the past two years. And the news comes weeks after N26 CEO said that the fintech could go public in 2024, but it's not stressed to do so anytime soon. So, yeah, an, in, an interesting story. Um, and in short, kind of the epitome, it feels like, of not really engaging the regulator properly, having um, an open relationship, um, and just really not learning from mistakes if you've if you've been caught for this before then you know tighten it up um and it's just a bit of an own goal to be honest uh you know these things should be tight um they should be you know disciplined and certainly not stop you from getting any new customers um in one of your markets yeah you want to stay on the right side of the regulator in that sense don't you particularly when you're expanding out into new markets but uh all right everybody let's bring you back for the last one we always like to have a little bit of fun at the end of this don't we uh this is one that was covered uh predominantly on people losing their minds on twitter uh liam payne launches revolut cards so british pop star I didn't know who this guy was, um, and former One Direction member, I didn't know who they were. Liam Payne has launched his own personalized Revolut card as part of an, in, uh, of an influencer marketing campaign. The sunset card features a dusky sunset scene and made of 75% recycled plastic. Payne launched the collaboration on his Twitter account, which he has 36.4 million people. Dang, that's that's pretty impressive, actually, isn't it? Uh, is made up of, uh, he said it's made up of 75% recycled plastic, something that you guys know is important to me. I mean, not enough to make it 100%, I guess, but, you know, 75% is a, is a good way, isn't it? Revolut are no strangers to influencer campaigns, having previously worked with former heavyweight champion Anthony Joshua on a glow-in-the-dark uh, card with proceeds going to independent boxing gyms. Um, a lot of people getting, I mean, a lot of people who were One Direction fans getting super excited about this one and and seemingly uh, that connection being enough for them to, um, you know, switch banks and and sort of take this one up. But uh, uh, I mean, you said you were a bit, a bit of a Snoop Dogg fan earlier on. I mean, if Snoop Dogg came out with a Revolut connection, would that be enough to to get you to sort of switch for that card? Uh, I'm I'm not sure to be honest. I think I would listen to his music and maybe some other entertainment um, suggestions, perhaps. But changing my banking provider, I'm not I'm not necessarily convinced. Yeah, I mean, I definitely started buying more Just Eats just because of the song. But like, you know, like I'm not I'm not sure I would take his investment uh, advice particularly on that sense. But Peter, I mean. Celebrity endorsements, do you reckon they've got a, a place in this day and age? I actually do. We are not the target market for celebrity endorsements. Yeah. Like, that's for sure. I, I have two teenagers and they listen to the people they love, like musicians, sports stars. They listen to them more than they listen to their parents. So I, th I actually think influencer marketing is a great way to get to get your message out, and particularly if it's uh, something that the – the, the, your target market is really aligned with. I think. Uh, I think it's it's got its place, and I think it's. I see many successful uh, campaigns in uh, in the US that I that I my kids they know I'm in fintech, so they come in and say, "Oh, look, I I saw you know Charlie D'Amelio, who's the number one." Instagram person or no, TikTok, I think it is, um, and she she was talking about a, a fintech 
digital banks. So, you know, they they they, they pay attention to these people. Yeah. I mean, my, my kids are eight and ten. So, like, basically, it's like if I don't know Mr. Beast, they basically think I don't <laughs> exist. You know what I mean? And, and who actually did do, like, yes. a tie-in with a fintech over he, in the U.S., didn't he? Has, he? Which yes. uh, I think they, they, they got into a bit of trouble for that, though, didn't they? Because it's, uh, again, the... I know the the UK regulator has a the sort of line between advice and guidance becomes somewhat sort of blurry in those senses, and I'm not sure Mr. Beast should be giving people financial advice. Do you know what I mean? Like it just doesn't it doesn't seem like his place. You know? No, well, his main gig is giving money away, so that's uh, yeah. that's, that's what he's famous for. It, it, well, I mean, he's, dude has made a lot of money out of giving money mm-hmm. away. Like uh, <laughs> I, I've I've been raised differently, but uh, Dan, who would it have to be like from a celebrity perspective? Like who do you like? Who's your current account with now? Uh, Revolut, actually. <laughs> Revolut. All right. Oh, yeah. man, this is going to be different. Okay, if, Mo- if like Monzo, like let's say Starling, if Star- like Anne tapped up some some celebrity, like who would that celebrity have to be in order for you to move away from Revolut to get to that thing? I'm pretty boring. It would have to be a sports star, I think. Some some cricketer or, or a footballer fan or something like that. No one too interesting, I think. I mean, I can't imagine cricketers getting into that. I know, it'd like, be a niche yeah. market, but it would work yeah. for me. And, you know, I can't think of any, like, Freddie Flintoff. Like, if, Fre- if Freddie Flintoff did, like, a, cr- <laughs> a card, you know it would come with some, like, additional benefits. You know what I mean? Like, it would be, it'd be like, a 20% discount at every uh, Weatherspoons or something, wouldn't it? You know, it'd, uh, it'd be really interesting. But I think it is interesting, like, say that, that have people gone beyond the, you know, do people just think that, yes, the celebrities put their name on this, but really are they recommended it? Really are they sort of doing anything with it? Or do, you, do you sort of, do we believe marketing anymore or are we... Are we just a generation of sceptical people? Mm, I think we are, but other generations are not. Yeah. Um, you I think, gu- I think gullible so- children. This is what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, kind of scepticism aside, I think the Liam Payne thing, uh, it, it opens up young, potentially younger people's minds to like what fintech is and how they might experiment with budgeting. I don't know. I, you know, if he's got younger fans, I think there is a positive influence mm-hmm. there in being like banking is interesting. And you should take a look at it. And actually, it's quite healthy to look at your balance every day and not spend over your needs or whatever. So, or sorry, over your name, over, over your balance. Yeah, you, you get the point. Um, so, yeah, I think I think there's something... That was a, that was a George Bush level. <laughs> <laughs> you know the old saying is... Uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think there could be... I think there's positive influence to it, but I don't necessarily being it something that would drastically materially move the dial on switching your customers from one account to another. Yeah. Well, I mean, with that many Twitter followers, then uh, you know we'll, we'll have to get Revolut on and talk about how that how that sort of stacks up. But given that, as we said, they've done this with Anthony Joshua, they're doing it with Liam Payne. Like, I, it ain't going to be the last. Like, clearly, it's working, so it ain't going to be the last time. And actually, how do they? How does fintech go more mainstream? It's got to be by you know distribution through different opportunities. It, you know, we talked about this at the top of the show, Dan. You know, every fintech really wraps itself around a community, and yeah. you know, celebrities have pretty pretty deep, pretty loyal communities as well. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be super interesting. All right. On that note, though, uh, we could talk about celebrities I don't know and how old I feel for for another hour, I'm sure, but we probably better wrap up the show. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, everybody. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and the things that you do? Wow, that rhymes. That's really weird. Nicole. Great. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn or if you want to get in touch, it's nicole.perry at 11fs.com. Very good. Peter. I'm on Twitter at Peter Renton and uh, same on LinkedIn. At, uh, Peter Renton is my tag there. Very good. Dan? Yeah, LinkedIn, definitely the best place to find me. 
Uh, and as for me, you can find me making up weird rhymy puns. I feel really cellar black after that one. It was uh, weird, which is not a reference for our own international listeners. Google her. She was really, really big in the 80s. Uh, as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn predominantly these days. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Join the conversation over on pretty much every social media channel at this stage or email us on podcast at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for joining us, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.